read verses 38 through 44. And Elisha came to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as soon, sorry, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. He said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. While they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I serve set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. In 1906, Alfred Henry Lewis stated, There are only nine meals between mankind and anarchy. The Russian leader, Vladimir Lenin, stated, Every society is three meals away from chaos. Those quotes, while disagreeing about the exact timing, powerfully state the basic drive everyone has for food, and that without it, they will go in mob fashion. These are not just theoretical statements. You may remember back in 2011, the Arab Spring Revolts. And while the main cause was government corruption, this led to food prices going up. Thus, in Tanzania, the first country, the rioters cheered bread and water without dictatorship. In Algeria, the second country that revolted, the youth chanted, bring us sugar, as the price of milk, sugar, and flour had risen. The countries around took note, and the oil-rich Kuwait announced that all of their citizens would be given the equivalent of $3,500 and free food for 13 months. Quell the revolts. Or even well, more well-known, though maybe not historically accurate, Marie Antoinette's Let Them Eat Cake was what finally caused the cookie to crumble. Food matters. We crave daily bread. Now, in our wealthy society, with our stores mostly stocked with aisles of food, we give little thought or time to planning, planting, storing, growing food. You know, we take for granted that probably none of us in our house has enough food to get us until the first fruits of spring. But none of us is worried. None of us is going, are we going to make it? Am I going to have enough food to eat until we get a harvest? We just take for granted. We'll eat what we want when we want. It's, don't even give it a thought. And yet for most people in human history, a large portion of their life was given to the planning, planting, the protecting, and then harvesting and storing food. All so that they could do it again the next year. So they could do it the next year. So they could just live and in the midst of that, every year they had to deal with the reality of potential droughts, storms, diseases, or bugs that could wipe out the whole year's crop in less than a day. And it's against this mindset of 
constantly living in concern for having enough food that we can understand, though not condone, Israel's proclivity to complain about food and water. It's that that gives us insight to why they were pulled to a god such as Baal, who was supposedly the ruler of the weather and fertility. Now, though we can understand, we can't condone it, because God's first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. Yes, God knows our frames. He knows we are but dust, but he does not give us a pass for turning from him to other gods, even for the necessity of food. Israel should know they could trust God, for whenever they turned to him, he provided water and manna and meat to eat. Thus in Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, he says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and out and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he has humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did not your fathers did not know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This morning we come to two stories in which we see people needing food, and we see God's provision, God giving them their daily bread. The story is really a section that we're looking at is two stories. First, in verses 38 through 41, we'll see that God redeems good-intentioned folly. And then in the last three verses, we'll see that God rewards and multiplies faithfulness. But as we begin looking at this story, it's helpful to remember the larger context of what's going on. We're in the midst of those days in Israelite history when Judah has stayed in the south and the other tribes have split up and become Israel in the north. And yet while the south has been mostly faithful to God, the northern tribes immediately turn to other gods and they've worshipped them and they have fallen deeper and deeper into sin. King Ahab and his notorious wife Jezebel lived in outright defiance to the Lord and even funded the priest to Baal. In response to this, God sent the prophet Elijah who rebuked them and then God provided for him in the wilderness and then even in Jezebel's own country. Then God brought him back and he had the famous battle on Mount Carmel. And then at 2 Kings 2, we see, saw God pass the mantle from Elijah to Elisha. And from that point, we've been seeing various ways in which God has been working through Elisha. In the stories in this chapter before this, we saw him with a widow and her being given oil to pay off her debts and have money to live on with the Shunammite, Shunammite woman. And now we have these two stories, not with widows or women, but with prophets. And it appears that there are various schools of prophets, and Elisha would take journeys and visit them and teach them and instruct them. And this story is rather straightforward. Elisha shows up to one, and he tells his servant, probably Gehazi, you know, go put on the big pot of stew, and he starts to make it, and being a famine, they don't have enough, so they say, hey, can you all go out and get some more things to throw in the stew? And one man goes out and unknowingly, as he's getting herbs, he cuts up gourds that are poisonous and he puts them into the stew. And then when they serve it, they cry out, there's death 
in this pot? Well, was this literally something that would bring death? Or was this something like, ugh, man, did something crawl into your socks and die? Those smell like death. We don't really know, but it's definitely something they do not want to eat and feel like something needs to be done. It's horrible. And so Elisha calls for some flour. He throws it in and it's better. Now in this story and throughout the Bible, if we don't remember the context, we're going to draw all kinds of wrong conclusions about what we're being taught. We're not being taught if you can get the right amount in the right type of flour, was it rye, barley, wheat, that you can remove poison from food or make that disgusting pot taste delicious. We're not being given a glimpse of a secret magical potion. So why did God have Elisha use flour? Why didn't he just say pray and it'll get better? Well, we're not told. But throughout scripture, we often see that God uses visible tools to do miraculous works. Did Moses need a staff to part the Red Sea? Well, no. He could have just spoke, and yet God used a staff. Did Elijah need a cloak to strike the Jordan so the waters would part? No. But God chose to use that for to give us visible representations for our minds. At the end of the service, we'll take communion. Do we need bread and juice to understand the death and resurrection of our Lord? Well, no, but God has given us these physical, visible things to help us. In this case, we don't know why he used flour, but again, it's probably showing them something visible. Not because flour has some secret divine healing power. Now, I don't want to belabor this point, but I am going to expand a little bit more. Because sometimes the people will, with good intentions, twist the Bible to say things that it's not saying. For example, <coughs> excuse me, and I don't mean to step on anyone's nose here, but some seem to think that Ezekiel 4.9 is a secret recipe for healthy bread. In Ezekiel 4, God commands the prophet Ezekiel to go and lie on his side for 390 days, and then... It says in Ezekiel 4.9 that during those 390 days, and you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them in a single vessel and make your bread from them. One website reads, Ezekiel 4.9 products are crafted in the likeness of this holy scripture verse to ensure unrivaled, honest nutrition and pure, delicious flavors. It is this special, unique Combination of six grains and legumes that harvest benefits beyond what we normally expect from our breads, pasta, cereals, and other foods. Now, it might be true that God specifically gave those six ingredients because Ezekiel was only going to eat that for a year and he needed more than just the normal diet. Yet, that would be a mere byproduct, and it's definitely not the point of Ezekiel 4 9. And I say that because if this is some divinely inspired recipe, we need to go all the way. And the rest of the way is this, that it says, During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390, you shall eat of it. And your food that you shall eat be, be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink it. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. So if the recipe was given to us to give us 
to ensure unrivaled, honest nutrition and pure, delicious flavors, then so is lying on your side for 390 days. So is only eating 20 shekels of it of a day, whatever that works out to be. So is drinking only water and cooking it over dung. I didn't see that on their website, though. If it wasn't intended to give us a secret recipe, well, why did God have Ezekiel do this? Because it was a visible sign to Israel that they were going to be taken into exile and they were going to have to eat unclean foods. Thus, the main point is that Ezekiel 4.9 bread is a curse, not a blessing. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy the bread, nor am I not saying you should eat it. If I come to your house and you have Ezekiel 4.9 bread, you don't need to hide it in the back of the cupboard. It's a shame that the pastor's here. Sing it. If you enjoy it, then great. Go ahead and keep enjoying I'm sh- I can guarantee it's healthier than white bread. My point is, just don't eat it thinking that somehow you're ensuring unrivaled, honest nutrition and pure, delicious flavors. That's a complete misunderstanding of what Ezekiel 4.9 is about. And just like it would be a complete misunderstanding in 2 Kings 4 to go, Oh, flour. God's giving us a secret way to battle poisonous foods or help grandma's stew taste better. No. Why did God do that? I don't know. But it's not some secret that we need to connive from Scripture. But besides pointing out a way we shouldn't take this, let's point two important applications from this passage. The first one, and one that we often have to remember in American Christianity, is that is while God cares for his believers, he always does, that doesn't mean we won't suffer. Did you notice the, the famine affected the faithful along with the unfaithful? It's not as though the prophets had plenty of food because they're honoring God and everyone else in the land was starving. God's care should not be thought of as though he's going to remove all trials and suffering from your life. Your illness or your family's illness may get worse. Your finances may not improve. The country may go farther from God. This is not just, well, that was the Old Testament, but now that Jesus has come, everything's going to be health and wealth. Well, no. Even in the book of Acts, after Jesus came, we read in Acts 11, 27-30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Notice it didn't say there's going to be a famine in the whole land except for the crops for believers. No, it was for Christ-following farmers and Christ-denying farmers that they lost their crops. It was for Christ-loving people and Christ-hating people that they were in desperate need of food. That's why the believers knew we have to raise up money and send it to them because they're going to be hurting just like everyone else. Thus, one important application is we have to realize when there is suffering, when there is punishment on a nation, believers will experience it just like unbelievers. Another important application that I got from Ray Dillard really struck me. He writes, Imagine what the scavenging prophet, the one who put the gourds in the pot, 
was thinking. I should have stayed in bed. Nothing I do goes right. Now the whole group's upset with me. What's the point in trying? Don't we feel this way at times? And we've carefully contemplated, how can I reach out to this person? And we think and we plan. And then we go and we're so excited. We're serving the Lord. I'm going to go love this person. And when it's over, we go, I think the situation's worse. I think what I did actually made our relationship bad. It's worse now than before I did anything. We go, God wants me to serve. And you see someone, you go, you know what? They're not even going to ask. I'm just going to go do it. And they come in, they go, oh, stop, stop. What are you doing? Oh, why did you touch that stuff? Why? Oh. And you think, I was trying to honor the Lord. I was trying to serve. And I've, I've just screwed everything up. And then what are we tempted to do? I quit. What's the point? Even when I try and do what's right, I just mess it all up. Wouldn't that, this, that's this, this prophet. I go out and help. I'm trying to be, I'm not hiding in the backwoods. Oh yeah, I'm looking, just doing nothing. I was one of the ones looking for gourds. I tried to help and sh I screwed up the pot. We're tempted to quit, throw in the towel and be done. But yet notice what God does in this passage. For through Elisha, he redeems the scavengers' good intention <coughs> folly. And we need to be clear. Let's not sugarcoat it. The man's actions were foolish. He ruined a whole pot of stew. However, neither do we need to beat him up because he was trying to do something helpful. His intentions were good. And in the midst of this, God sends his prophet to buy back. That's what redeem means. To redeem this man's actions. You know, living in a sin-cursed world, sometimes our well-intentioned actions end up being folly. Sometimes, though, people even discourage us because they go, look, don't even try. It's pointless. It's going to be foolish. We're not going to see any good come from that. You know, we're very influenced by pragmatism. Pragmatism is the idea that we're, we're only going to do what's going to have observable, practical consequences. You know, it's a whatever works mindset so that good outcomes are achieved. And sometimes our efforts don't achieve any external positive results. And sometimes they end up not fixing the problem at all. And sometimes even worse, like our story here, sometimes they make the situation worse. So where are you close to stopping because you don't see results? Perhaps it's parenting. Why do I even get up and discipline them? I've done it five times and they're doing it the sixth. It's pointless. Perhaps it's personal holiness. Why even continue to fight this sin? I'm going to give up eventually anyway. Why not just go ahead and give in? Perhaps it's helping those in need. Why go help them again? Why give them money? They're going to call me in another week saying they need more help. Perhaps it's in relationships. Why talk to them? Every time I talk, they don't listen. What's the point? Yet in each of those, yes, in each of those, there are times we should reevaluate. Perhaps we should say, maybe our disciplining techniques aren't the best. Perhaps I should be fighting this sin differently. Perhaps I'm enabling this poor person, not helping them. Perhaps this isn't the right time or manner to talk to this person. Yet while we should periodically reflect, most often, I think we need to persevere 
even in the midst of not seeing results. And let me give you four encouragements to persevere. First, this is going to be a real pastoral insight here. Hold your breath. First, you're not God. And you don't know that just because your actions haven't worked before, they're not going to work this time. Isn't it one straw that breaks the camel's back? Maybe you're about to put the last straw. Oh, I quit. I'm not going to do it. Sometimes it just takes one more time, and you don't know if this next one is the one that God will use. And that's the second one. Another insight. You're not God. And you're not responsible for the results anyways. You're responsible for being faithful. That's why Jesus says in Mark 9.41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. A cup of water? I mean, what's the big deal? Is it really that big a deal to give someone a cup of water? Does that change the world? Does that really cause us to see any changes? Well, no. really doesn't do much at all. In human eyes, but in God's eyes, it's a faithful token to His servants that will bring reward and blessing. God calls us to faithfulness, not to the results we can see. Third motivation, you're not God. And you don't know all of the unintended good results that happen because of your faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's masterful argument about how we can know the resurrection is historically true, that Jesus did bodily rise from the dead. And what's the conclusion of this amazing argument? Verse 58, he writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection shows that God is a redeeming God. And your labor is not in vain. What are some unintended results? Well, your perseverance when you want to quit, it might deepen your character. It might make you more Christ-like yourself. Your perseverance might be an encouragement to others to be faithful. They might go, I can't believe it. I would have thrown in the towel years ago. And they just keep going. Oh, they're so encouraging. But you don't see that because you're just focused on is this changing as well your faithfulness might serve as a warning to others let's use our example the disciplining of the unchanging child you know there's often other children watching and sometimes those other children go you know dad's not going to give up on this so you know what i'm not even going to try because he's not going to give up on me either and sometimes other people are watching and they're going, they're going to keep disciplining. And though you may not change that one, which isn't your job in the first place, you are, by God's grace, leading others to be changed. You can't maybe get them to obey. That's God's role. But you can be faithful to what he's called you to do and trust that your labor is not in vain. Well, fourth. There are frustrations that occur because our actions don't lead to the results we want. But that shouldn't lead us to passivity, to stopping. It should lead us to persevere in prayer. 
That's why Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And what a prayer. He's not saying, well, you know, God's going to take care of us. It really doesn't matter. I don't care if what I do matters. No, we should want our efforts to lead to fruit. There's nothing wrong with praying, God, I've been doing this. Would you please establish the work that I'm doing? I'm trying to honor you. And so we pray, pray, pray. God, would you use the things I'm doing? Knowing that in all this, whether we see it or not, due to the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. Thus God redeems our actions. And now in the second story, we see that God rewards and multiplies faithfulness. Verses 42 through 44. Because following this, a man came to bring the prophets the first fruits of his harvest, barley loaves and fresh grain. Well, first fruits are exactly what they sound like. They're the first fruits of the harvest. After having waited almost an entire year since the last harvest, the farmer would be overjoyed that he now made it through the planting, planting and protecting the fruits. The first fruits have made it, and it's pointing to a greater harvest that's about to come. Yet God called for Israel to give the first fruits to the priest. God called them to give this costly first gift because it showed if they would trust him for the rest. They didn't give after they'd enjoyed the fresh fruit, restocked the grain sacks for the next seeding, and filled the store barns for winter. They gave before having done any of those things, declaring that they knew God would provide for all so they can give him the first and the best. And notice here, this unnamed man, we're not told who he is, just verse 42, a man came from Baal Shilashia. He came and he brought his first fruits to Elisha and the prophets. He didn't bring it to the priest. Well, why? Because the priests in Israel are serving Baal. He's sowing, I'm going to give to the faithful representatives of God. He honors God by giving his first fruits to those who are seeking to honor God. You may remember that God told Elijah, there are 7,000 who have still not bowed the knee. And surely this is one of them. This reminds us that in the midst, even in the midst of pagan Israel, there was a righteous remnant. A group of people being faithful to God. You know, sometimes we think that country, that city, that political party is so dark, no believer could ever be a part of that. Yet God often has a righteous remnant, even in the midst of evil empires. Dale Davis recounts Eric Little, the famous runner, who then became a missionary to China, traveling through Japan, sorry, traveling through China while Japan was occupying it. Little was waiting at an inn when the Japanese military came in to inspect all the luggage. Little opened his eye, opened his bag, and the man's eyes fell on the New Testament nestled there. In slow, broken English, he said, Bible? You, Christian? The man, the Japanese soldier, then held out his hand and shook Little's then turned and went off. Who would have guessed that Jesus had a servant in the Japanese military? 
You're one of the most evil empires. And God had someone honoring him in its midst. How could he serve in it? Well, I don't know. But how could Joseph and Esther and Mordecai and Nehemiah and Daniel and others serve in completely wicked nations? And yet they did and were shown in scripture that they still honored God. Yes, each of them had lines and each of them, almost all of them, had a point where they were willing to die because they would not cross that line. And yet they still served in and for those evil empires. And here, this man, this unnamed man, is serving God even in the midst of an evil nation. Now this must have been pretty costly. There in the midst of a famine, you don't imagine that a man walks through town in the midst of a famine with 20 barley loaves and someone doesn't say, what are you doing with all that grain? Well, I'm going to go give it to the prophets of Yahweh. What? Are you serious? We're in a famine. Supposedly Yahweh's in control. We don't get any grain. You're going to go waste it on the prophets of Yahweh. What a waste. Can you believe this guy? Do you still believe that stuff? It probably was not easy to serve the Lord. And yet he obeyed and faithfully gave to God, no matter what his peers might say or do. And it's especially noteworthy because there's enough famine. You know, he could have easily rationalized, look, I'm going to give to God later. I got to get the seed for next spring. I got to store it for winter. I have all these things that have to be taken care of. Then I'll give to God. And yet God declares that the first fruits are symbolic of the rest. And what we do with them shows what we truly think we need and who will take care of it. It was the worship of God and giving to him first priority in your life. Or is it after you've taken care of everything else? Does God get your first and best or your last and your worst? Is he like the dogs, that they can get the scraps once you've consumed everything you've wanted. Whether it be our time, our money, our energy, our resources, our talents, God calls us to use it for Him first and trust that He will care for our needs. So are you trusting Him in this way? Or are you rationalizing, delaying, waiting for that perfect time? Then you'll serve Him. The story is just another example of when we serve God, we put him first, he will take care of the rest. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Elisha, back to our story, then told his servant, most likely Gehazi, go with this food and serve all the prophets. But Gehazi is like, this isn't going to serve everyone. How much does one barley loaf feed? Well, I don't know, but clearly not five, because 20 of them is ridiculous in Gehazi's eyes to feed a hundred. And yet Elisha repeats to give to the people that they may eat. And he continues by saying, the Lord says they shall eat and have some left over. Then Gehazi does it and they ate and they have some left over, just like Yahweh said would happen. What's interesting as you read through the Gospels, if you pay attention, you'll realize that only two miracles are given in every Gospel. One is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other is not even his birth. That's not recorded in Mark's Gospel. 
And yet another miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 men, is recorded in every gospel. Now there's some striking similarities between these two stories. There's a large group who are gathered, why? Because they want to hear God's word. And this group is now hungry. For each group, a command is given to feed everyone. And in each group, those who are commanded to do so incredulously say, how could we do it with our resources? We don't have enough. And in each one, the people are given so they eat and have some left over. And yet while there are similarities, there are also striking differences. Elisha had 20 loaves of barley and ears of grain for 100 men. Jesus had less, five loaves and two fish, for 5,000 men plus however many women and children would have been along as well. Not only that, there were more left over. And so while there are similarities, there are differences. I think what's going on is Jesus is showing that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Yes, Moses was great. Through Moses, God fed them in the wilderness. Yes, Elijah and Elisha were great. Through them, God fed widows and these prophets. And yet through the Son of God, Christ, he can feed a group far beyond what we could imagine or think. And that is really a foreshadowing of Revelation 19, where we will feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb and where we will be satisfied. Thus, whether it was Lenin saying people will riot after three mills, or Lewis after nine, or some other number, we see that people need and crave food. And yet Jesus lets us know that we often crave the wrong food. That's why in John 6 he said, Do not labor for the food that perishes. You know, tragically, as sinful people, we labor for what will not satisfy us. You know, when we're hungry, we know how to go and make a snack or a meal, and we are filled. And yet, due to our sin, we have a spiritual hunger, and we try to fill it with what only makes us more hungry. Thus God asked in Isaiah 55, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. That's why Jesus said in John 6.35 that we read earlier, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. We're entering a new year. And at this time, many people make resolutions to improve their life. I know many people have given up on resolutions because within a few weeks or maybe a few hours, they've broken all their resolutions anyways. Well, a few years ago, my friend, missionary Richie Goodrich, who's been here a few, few times, shared one man's funny New Year's resolutions. 2015, I will get my weight below 175 pounds. 2016, I'll watch my calories until my weight is below 195 pounds. 2017, I will follow my new diet until I get below 215 pounds. 2018, I will work out once a week. 2019, I will drive past the gym at least once a week. Back to 2015, I will read at least 20 good books a year. 2016, 
I'll read at least 10 books a year. 2017, I'll read five books a year. 2018, I'll read some articles in the newspaper this year. 2019, I'll scan the headlines on my news feed this year. 2015, I'll pay off my bank loan promptly. 2016, I'll pay off my bank loan promptly. 2017, I'll be totally out of debt by next year. 2018, I'll try to pay off the debt interest by next year. 2019, I'll try to be out of the country by next year. You know, many of us have given up on resolutions. What's the point? I'm not going to keep it going. Why even try? And yet, call it resolutions or whatever you want. Do it January 1st or August 15th. It doesn't matter. There are times in our life when we need to stop and reflect and go, is what I'm doing leading me in a life that's honoring God and helping me? Because we just saw we're able to fill ourselves physically, but are we laboring for the food that will last for eternal life? Are you working for what matters, for the bread that endures, which Jesus tells us is himself. We cannot live by bread alone. We need the spiritual bread of God's word. So are you planning to feed yourselves in 2022? Are you planning to eat? You know, coming here on Sunday is great, but this, hopefully, feast of God's word cannot get you through to the next Sunday. If you had a friend who said, oh yeah, I love to go to Golden Crown Monday night. And you go, oh, well, what do you do Tuesday? Well, I actually don't eat until the next Monday. I just go once a week. You go, well, that's kind of crazy to just eat one meal a week, even though it's a big one. Well, to just show up on a Sunday and enjoy rich teaching in Sunday school and a sermon and great songs, but then go off and not feed yourself the rest of the week is to spiritually starve yourself be in god's word if you think i don't know how to do that how would i even be in god's word we'll talk to keith talk to myself we'd be glad to give you tools or help you as well we provide resources come join us on wednesday night a midweek snack as we taste god's word and pray together we make sure we eat three times a day and we feed our children are we feeding them spiritually and yet you might be saying well what's the point you know i get up really tired and i read and i 20 minutes later go what did i read is there any point well isn't this story showing us that god redeems good intentions isn't it showing us that the righteous who come and give their first fruits that he will come and reward them it's not always tangible. You can't always see it. But God, by His Word, will feed you. So keep reading and keep digging in, knowing that man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank You for Your Word. Would we truly taste and see that it is good? Lord, thank You for these stories as they remind us of Your faithfulness, in generations past, and may it stir us to faithfulness today. Lord, your faithfulness is great, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.